Last week we looked at Mark chapter 11. Typically that passage that we hear on Palm Sunday as Jesus heads into Jerusalem in a celebratory manner. And we... <clears throat> We noted how there was significant repetition in that passage, repetition that was from the Old Testament, Jesus on a colt, a reference to what the prophet, uh, prophet Zechariah had talked about what would happen. And they placed cloaks not only on the colt, but also on the ground as Jesus came into Jerusalem in reference to Jehu, when Jehu became king, they placed cloaks in front of him as he became king. And also a repetition of Scripture as the people were shouting a section of Psalm 118, referencing Jesus being in the lineage of David, the son of David, perhaps. <clears throat> then... We got to the end of the passage. Jesus got into Jerusalem. He got to the temple. He looked around. He realized it was late. And he left the city of Jerusalem and headed back to Bethany. It was those activities of that day of him entering Jerusalem, heading to the temple, and then leaving that sets us up for what Jesus is going to be doing in the future. It's a repetition of those things. The next day, uh, if we continue to read chapter 11, maybe you did that this week, Jesus and the disciples headed back into Jerusalem. And as Jesus got into the temple, he cleared out the temple of all the, the money changers, of all the individuals who were seeking personal gain by what was happening in the temple. And then Jesus left. And now, uh, now once again, we're going to be looking at a passage this morning where Jesus uh, will be, again, he arrived at the temple. His authority was questioned by the teachers of the law. They wanted to know, by what authority are you doing and teaching the way that you are? And Jesus responds to them with a question, well, it was John's baptism of men or was it of God? Because the teachers of the law knew that John was well respected by the people, they didn't want the people to be angry at them, so they said, we don't know. Jesus then responds saying, well, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. And then Jesus went into teaching a parable which we will look at this morning, which is going to be in Mark chapter 12. Uh, it'll be on page 824 if you grab one of those black Bibles in front of you. Students, if you have one of your Bibles with you, it'll be page 1,237. Up to this point, there have been four parables that Jesus has taught. And oftentimes when Jesus teaches a parable, there's this, this hidden meaning, and, and oftentimes Jesus will take his disciples to the side and say, this is what this parable means. Right? The first parable Jesus told was of 
of seed that was scattered, and seed went into these different places, rocky soil, it went into good soil, it went variety of places, and Jesus took his disciples aside and said, this is like the word entering people's hearts and gave different descriptions. The parable that Jesus is going to give now, the message is going to be clear and plain for everyone to hear. He's not going to have to explain, and, and we'll kind of hear that in the passage itself, because everyone, including the teachers of the law and the scribes and the Pharisees, will know what Jesus is saying. So let's look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We'll read uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. <clears throat> Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head, and they treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. And he sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son, whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Somewhere, there we go. Jesus speaks of this vineyard in his parable, and this vineyard that he speaks of is a very familiar image to all the people of Israel. It would have been an image that was, was well known that Everyone who was young would have known about it, and everyone who was, was very aged would have known about it. But though it was well known to them, the image of the vineyard in the Old Testament might not be as well known to us, is it? The image comes from the prophet Isaiah, and if you wanted to turn to it, it would be Isaiah chapter 5. And... Isaiah chapter 5 is this poem 
really. Uh, a poem that focuses on, on a vineyard and the Lord being the one who plants the vineyard. Uh, I don't put this on the screen, but um, here, here, I'll read it out. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He, this is God, right? He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a watchtower on it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes. It's a picture of the Lord planting Israel in some choice land. Israel is, is the vineyard, and, and God does everything he can to set up the situation to be good for his vineyard. He sets up a, a watchtower. A watchtower was, was what was used to protect the vineyard so you could see any enemies coming on. It was used as, as a housing for the people that would come during harvest time as they would with gather all the fruits. It sounds like this is the beginning of a, a beautiful poem. The choicest vines. God watching over the people. God setting up a place for them to make wine out of those choice grapes. I mean, if God's watching over a vineyard, surely that would be better wine than you could get from the Napa Valley or better wine than you can get from France. And yet, though God waits and God set the vineyard up for success, this is what it says. When I looked for good grapes... Why did it only yield bad? God was looking for the, the good fruit of his people of Israel. And he, he couldn't find any. All that was there was unusable grapes. The image that was familiar to the people, the image of the vineyard, was an image that told the people a story of, of people set up for a good thing and all that came was bad. Told a story where God said the only response to all this work that I put in ahead of time to, to create these choice vine and put them in a place for success is that the vineyard must be taken down and that the wild animals must overtake this area and it, may be, it must be left for whatever will happen to it. The vineyard in Isaiah 5 is a description of a persistent rejection of people to their God-given call. That's the image that the people are aware of when Jesus starts talking about, about a vineyard and about a vineyard owner, 
And Jesus repeats a lot of these same elements, doesn't he? He he repeats all the things that Israel still believes to be true. That God is the owner of the vineyard. He is the one that's watching out for it. He's the one that planted it. And Israel is still the vineyard. They are still the the choicest vines. And additionally, he added some things that the Israelites still uh, believed that were true, which is that God was, was somehow at a distance and that he was somehow uh, had been addressing his people uh, to, to get them to move back uh, to following the way of God. They believed that God was, was waiting and God was was longing for them to obey his purposes and and that God was significantly patient and would always be waiting for them to do that. Waiting for the people of Israel to listen and obey. It's those prophets that are these servants that are sent. The prophets that we read about in the Old Testament, except instead of receiving these prophets, instead of welcoming them and welcoming the the message that they bring, what Jesus says is when they came, When the prophets came, when God sent one, what you did was you beat them. You beat them and you sent them away empty-handed. And yet God is, is patient, Jesus says. So not only did he send one, but we see he sent another to them. An immensely patient God does not just stop at one time reaching out to his people. An immensely patient vineyard owner does not stop at one time to receive some of those good grapes. And so he he sends multiple over and over. God sends multiple prophets. Multiple prophets that are treated shamefully that are struck. These servants mirror how Israel treated the prophets that came to them. And yet, and yet, God is immensely patient. And even after two times of sending prophets and and the people are not listening, he sends still another. We always say the third time's a charm, right? People need to hear the the same message over and over and over again until until they start getting it. I I heard a really terrible joke, which I'll share with you right now. Uh, It was a, I I don't know if a pastor actually did this, but it was a joke about a pastor preaching the same sermon every week. Like the same sermon, the same text, the same everything. And 
And someone goes, hey, I just noticed this sermon was the same as the last one. And, and this is the bad part. And he's like, yeah, you know, well, when you start actually doing it, then I'll start preaching something new. That's why I say it's bad. It's, it's really, uh, really kind of kind of sad. Uh, but here you have God sending, sending prophets. He's, he's sending them with the message, hoping for a change. And here the third time is not the charm that people take it up another notch, you could say. Instead of just striking them on the head, instead of beating them and sending them away empty-handed, they, they killed this one. And yet, because God is so patient, even though they didn't listen to one and they beat them, even though they didn't listen to another, they, they treated them shameful, even though they killed the third one, the owner will send many others there with the same purpose to get the vineyard and the vineyard renters on, on track to receive some of that, that good fruit. And yet all that happens to all, all these prophets, all these servants, is that they're disregarded and some of them are just discarded. So in this parable, the owner of the vineyard, he sends one that would, would have the same job, in a sense, as the others. This one would, would being, be doing the job of the servant. They would be, be going there. They would be doing the job as the prophet, but they would be so much more. And, and the owner thinks that if I send my son, they know that he means so much more to me than, than my servants, that then, then maybe they'll respond differently. Maybe they'll they'll turn to their calling and they'll, they'll begin sharing that good fruit. And yet, what this passage is, is just a, another foretelling of Jesus' death. The fourth time in the Gospel of Mark. The vineyard owner's son arrives, and he too will be disregarded and discarded. They took the son of the vineyard owner and they, they killed him, citing some kind of obscure law about inheritance that if, if there's not the son to inherit, then then it'll all be ours. We'll have all the, the power. We'll have all the uh, authority over this area. They killed him, and they threw him out. 
for us who we perhaps know the rest of the story, right? We read this and we say, yeah, the son of the vineyard owner, the son of God will be killed at the hands of Israel. If you've read the book of the uh, Gospel of Mark up to this point, you, you've come to know Jesus as the Son of God. Not only have we come to know Him by the, the baptism where the heavens open and God says, this is my Son, but we've come to know Him as the Son of God through the transfiguration as, as God comes once again in a a cloud and says, this is my son, listen to him. We've come to know him as the son of God in the line of David, as Bartimaeus says, son of David, calling out to Jesus, asking for healing. And if we're were the Israelites listening to Jesus speak a parable, whether they believed him to be the, the Messiah or not, perhaps they wondered, okay, how is this parable going to end? You know, some of them, they end with this nugget of truth, and they end and, and they're, they're kind of happy, like the old lady who looks around for a coin, and she can't find her coin, but then she does, and she celebrates, right? Or like the, the shepherd who loses one sheep, and he, he leaves the 99 to, to go find the one, and he celebrates when he finds the one. Or, or the, the father whose son essentially wished him for dead and wanted his inheritance early, and then his son goes and squanders it, and yet the dad sees the son coming at a distance and he runs out to get him and he welcomes him back in and he, and he puts a ring on his hand and he throws this big party. Yet, there's another side to some of the parables that Jesus shares. It's a parable of the weeds in, in Matthew chapter 13. It's where the owner, he plants some good seed and the enemy comes and he, the enemy brings weeds and, and, and puts weeds in all the, the owner's land. And both the weeds as well as the, the good wheat are able to, to grow up together. And then when the time of harvest comes, Jesus' parable said that the, the wheat is gathered and bundled and brought to the barn and the weeds are thrown in the fire. Sometimes there's that theme of judgment within Jesus' parables. In the parable of the unforgiving servant, it's a story where the king is immensely patient and gracious. And he he comes to settle his accounts, and there is, is one servant that has this unimaginable debt. 
And the servant begs and pleads. And the king says, I'll forgive you. You can go. And yet what that servant does is the servant goes and kind of wrings the neck of someone who owns him five bucks. Some small amount of money incomparable to what he had owed before. And the king finds out about how unforgiving the servant was. How that servant was unable to, to live in the same way that he had. And so he sends some guards to grab him and throw him in prison until he can pay his debt, which he would never be able to. This parable is kind of like one of those with the theme of judgment. The owner, the vineyard owner, sees <clears throat> he sees that all, all of his servants, all of his prophets, even his own son, that they've been disregarded and discarded. And Jesus asks a question, what then will the owner of the vineyard do? It's a rhetorical question Jesus asks. Because what this vineyard owner does is what the vineyard owner did in Isaiah chapter 5. This is what it says in Isaiah chapter 5. Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make a wasteland neither pruned nor cultivated. Briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. And now, after, after all the servants are disregarded and discarded, Jesus says, this is what the, the vineyard owner will do. He will come disregard and discard those evil tenants and give the vineyard to somebody else. A parable that doesn't really need explanation for the teachers of the law, for the elders. You can read that in the last verse that we read today. I don't have it on the screen, but where they say, they understood everything that Jesus had said. They looked, away, looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. They knew that they were talking about how all the priests and the teachers of the law and the scribes and the elders would disregard the prophet's call for them to, to move in the direction God had desired to. They knew that what Jesus was saying was that you are all heading in the wrong direction and, and now you have a choice of, of what you're going to do. Are you going to continue to do what this parable says you'll do? Will you? Will you as the the renters of the vineyard killed the Son of God? Or are you going to change your ways? 
Last week when we looked at the triumphal entry, we talked about how the, the, the people of Israel were, were using this well-known, and, and actually it's the most used psalm in the New Testament to, to be quoted. It was Psalm 118. And they, they used it as a way of, of saying Jesus is the Messiah. But the interesting thing is that that is not the most used verse within that passage. The most used one is, is what Jesus says here, that the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Jesus takes a verse from the same psalm that people were shouting two days earlier to call him the Messiah to say, I'm the one that you're rejecting. You see, the people were trying to take this stone and attempt to fit this stone into what they had come up with what the image of God was and what the image of the Messiah was. And the reality is when we, when we follow Christ, we can't attempt to take him and to, to fit him into a building of our own making. We can't take Christ and make him in our own image. We can't shoehorn him or attempt to fit him into some religious experience that's going to fit our needs and in our desires, in our wants. And so, so since the teachers of the law can't do that, now they're going to actively seek out a way to disregard and destroy him. He doesn't fit the mold that they wanted in a Messiah, so now they must destroy and discard him. They're the builders. They're the builders that have their, their own interests in mind. They're the builders that have their power and their authority in jeopardy of being lost, and, and they don't desire to lose that. They're scheming. As Mike mentioned in his prayer earlier today, that it doesn't take much to look around in the world and and see, you know, some of the similar violence that we see in this parable. We see people that seem to kind of get away with wherever they want. They, they want to keep their power, and so they perhaps live in a certain way. We can read the news or the newspapers or magazines, and, and, and we can read significant examples of leaders and governments and people who get away with what seems to be all forms of injustice, getting away with all, all forms of oppression. 
and I think there's times where that, that can sadden us. When we seem to be bombarded with all of these ways that things are not as they should be. Bombarded with ways that we see the exact opposite of the love of Christ. The exact opposite of people being able to be united together. And I think there can be times where you just get overwhelmed and you think, why doesn't God just do something? There's all this happening. Another war going on now. Another military coup. Why doesn't he do something? I think there's a point in this parable where in some real sense we can see that God sees what's happening. We can see that the vineyard odor sees what is happening. And we see that the vineyard owner does, in some sense, hurt, desiring something more for these people as he consistently reaches out. No matter what's happening to these messengers, he, he tries again, and it fails, and, and he reaches out again and again, and he sends multiple Numerous prophets in a row. And finally, finally he'll send his son. Because he desires something different for the tenants' lives. And yet there's that aspect of judgment that is so difficult where for those tenants who have disregarded and discarded all of the times where God has tried to reach out, that at some point in time He's going to overlook those individuals and find some new tenants. And that's what we see through the work of Christ. It was the work of Christ that caused all of the Gentiles to be grafted into those vines that was Israel. So that God then could call all of His children across the face of the earth His children. Giving everyone the opportunity to, to receive what Christ has done and come into that new and special relationship with Him. And not only a new and special relationship, but an opportunity that we then would become those who are bearing His fruit. We, we say that when we bear God's fruit, we live for God, we love our neighbors, and we lead people to Christ. That's our mission statement. 
we could wonder what, what is the fruit that Jesus is talking about when, when he was seeking out the fruit from this vineyard. Well, in the passage directly before, when Jesus threw out all of those money changers and those people that were looking to take advantage of the religious um, situation, we find that God's place of worship is to be a house of prayer. So, so maybe then, if, if you're looking for fruit in your life, maybe it's the fruit of, of prayer being something that's important in your life. And later on, I think in, in the rest of these chapters going forward, we'll, we'll, see, we'll see other ones. Maybe God requires or desires the fruit of our life to be one in which forgiveness resides. In chapter 12, the, the Pharisees will question if it's right to pay taxes. And maybe, maybe then the fruit in our life is to, is to give to God what belongs to God. Later on, maybe the fruit is that we're to love God with our heart, our soul, and our mind, and our strength. And love, love our neighbors, then, as ourselves. I think this, this passage is an invitation for us to think about the areas that God has been immensely patient with us. Just like God was immensely patient with the Israelites, in what ways has God been, been patient to you and me, thinking and longing for that day when, when they would just trust in the Spirit and trust in God's working and in our lives that we would be able to give up that one thing that we keep maybe going back to. Allows us to ask those questions. Where are the, where are the areas in our life that is the bad fruit that God wants us to, to rid ourselves of? Where are the areas He's longing for us to partner with Him and realize His kingdom fullness more in our lives and more in the lives of others. Because the Lord, He's given us as the, the people within His church a prophetic mission that we cannot ignore within the world. That when the Lord makes something known to us, when the Lord sends His messengers to us, that the Spirit would empower our minds and our hearts to, to acknowledge that, to not disregard and discard that message because it's too hard, it's too difficult, but to actively receive and rely on the Lord's Spirit to empower us in new ways of living and in new ways of glorifying Him in our lives. Let's pray together for the Lord to realize that not only in our lives, but in the lives of all those who hear the Lord's words.
Father, it's always difficult to to hear stories in Scripture that talk about judgment. Especially when we we know how much you love your people. You love them so much not to just try once or twice or even three times to, to get us to live differently. But that you have this never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love that consistently seeks out your people, desiring, desiring that we would follow you that we would, would change the way that we live and become more and more like the image of Christ. Lord, we know your Spirit is immensely powerful, and so we pray for the power of your Spirit to be actively working in our life, making aware those areas of bad fruit and bringing us into to new ways of living 